Matthew chapter 9. Uh, if you guys are new to our church, um, from day one when we planted Anthem, you, you may not have known kind of our heartbeat and why we even teach the way we do on Sundays, but it has been our heart from day one. Um, it's been our commitment uh, and practice to teach through books of the Bible uh, and not just teach from books of the Bible, and that's, there's a difference between that. And so we have tried really hard for the last 10 years to just like take a book and then break it down verse by verse and talk through it as best we can. And so some of you who are new, you're like, oh man, they're just like, they pick up where they left off last week, you know, and this, some weeks you get to passages and it's like, oh man, these are hard passages to teach. Other weeks you get to these passages, passages and it's sort of like the Lord just teed you up for this awesome uh, message to give. Um, but... The amazing thing about teaching through the word in its totality is that we get to teach through it all. We get to talk about all of it, um, the good and the bad, the things that we struggle with, um, the things that we're most encouraged by. And today's text, as I was preparing for this morning, I just kept thinking to myself, like, don't mess this up. <laughs> don't, don't mess this up. Because it's so simple, but yet it's so profound. It's, it's almost too good. And so my goal this morning is to teach it fairly simply, to not overcomplicate it, knowing that we don't have a ton of time this morning. But I want us to take a look at it at face value. I don't want to add a bunch of unnecessary stuff to this passage that we don't need to, because I think the simplicity of this text actually should rock us to the core. The simplicity of what Jesus is saying here. And it should encourage and it should edify the church. And so with that in mind, I've got this really simple outline with like four points from this text. And I just want to look at these four things that I kind of noticed when I'm walking through this text that help me understand it a little bit more. And so let me pray for us. And then let's read this passage, Matthew 9, 9 through 13, and then let's dig into it. Jesus, we thank you for the gift to be able to come and to study your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me this morning, Lord, that you would... Um, anoint my tongue and my mind and my heart. I pray, Jesus, for each of us that we would not read through this um, just as a religious practice where we just read a text and then go on with our days, but we actually come to you this morning and we pray, Jesus, that you would allow what we read to actually settle into our hearts, to challenge us, to shape us, um, and, and to move us to action, Lord. And so we give this time to you this morning, Jesus, and we pray that you're honored um, in this time where we get to study your word. Jesus, would you reach into the depths of the hearts in this room and begin a work in them that some of them had no idea would start this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. He says this, Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him, pretty simple. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. If you're taking notes this morning, I'm just going to give you four things that I kind of noticed as I was reading through this, or four things we should take note of. The first one is this, is that 
we need to notice in this passage who it was that Jesus called. We can sort of fall prey sometimes to reading through passages of Scripture and not really understanding the context, um, why it was written the way it was, who the people are that are being talked about in this text. And so in Matthew 9, or in verse 9 of this chapter, it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. So who's Jesus calling? Matthew, to follow him. If you've been around for the last few weeks, you know that Jesus has just completed this journey. He, uh, he, he, he went from Capernaum, which is on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. We talked about this. He went down the southern part of the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis, into this area called the Gadarenes, and there's where he engages these two demon-possessed men, and he casts these demons out of these men, and then the city is kind of frustrated, and they tell Jesus to leave. And so Jesus leaves. They get back in the boat. They head back north on the Sea of Galilee, back to the city of Capernaum. And so he journeys back up. And verse, tells, verse 9 tells us there that as he passed from there. And so what's this there? Capernaum is that place. And so Jesus engages this tax collector, this guy named Matthew, who's manning his tax booth. So here's a little background for you. If you guys... Um, have looked at a map of Israel at all. Um, Capernaum was a very strategically placed city on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It, it was perfect, like this perfectly placed city on this major thoroughfare called the Via Maris. And so this highway sort of spanned from Syria and Damascus to the north, and it went all the way down to Egypt in the south. It went to the Jordan in the east. It went to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. It was the main thoroughfare. And so it's sort of like Coeur d'Alene in the sense that you have I-90 that spans from east to west, and you have 95 that spans north to south. And here is this little town of Coeur d'Alene right at the heart of that intersection. And so there's a ton of traffic coming in and out of this place called Capernaum. And this is where Jesus is at. It's sort of his home base for his ministry. This is where he finds this man, Matthew, there, this tax collector sitting in his booth. And so because there was so much movement coming in and out of Capernaum, people traveling on this thoroughfare, it made it this perfect place for the Romans to put a taxation booth. And so to, they would basically be taxing people for coming in and out of the city. And so we see this tax booth that's ran by this guy named Matthew. In Luke's account, if you read the same story, Matthew's referred to as Levi. It's the same person. But Matthew was a tax collector, and more specifically, he was actually something called a publican. Anybody ever heard that term? If you go search what a publican is on the internet, you're going to find two answers. One is that in Great Britain, a publican is literally somebody who owns a pub. Pretty easy. Um, the other definition for a publican in, in ancient Rome, it was somebody who actually worked for the Romans. Specifically, they would collect taxes on behalf of the Romans on behalf of Rome. And so when, when Rome conquered Israel, they, they began to take taxes from the Jewish people. They, they, they came in and they oppressed the Jewish people and they took taxes from them. And the way that they did this was actually by offering these sort of tax franchises. And so what they could do for local people, these Jews, is that they would require these locals to collect certain taxes on their behalf. And so much like a business franchise, the Romans could come to a Jewish person, a Jewish citizen, and, and ask them to work for them and take out a franchise as a tax booth, and then they would be the one responsible to collect taxes from their people on behalf of the Roman citizens. And so they would sit at these booths and collect these taxers. 
um, these taxes. But these tax collectors also had the freedom to sort of add these surcharges to the taxes as they willed. And so not only were they charging what the, Roman citizen, what the Roman government was asking them to charge for these taxes, they would add their cut on top of it. And so you actually found some tax collectors that became very wealthy people because they could kind of charge whatever they wanted as a surcharge, and the surcharge was theirs. The rest of it went to the Roman government. And so sometimes these tax collectors would become quite wealthy. And the bummer part was that in the midst of this process, the people essentially had no choice but to pay the taxes because the, the Romans would actually defend the tax collectors. And so if you don't pay it, even though that's a Jewish citizen manning the tax with your buddy, the Romans are going to come after you because you didn't pay your buddy the Roman taxes. And so think about this. If you're one of the individuals living in Israel, a Jewish person, think about what's taking place. So Rome is it is overthrowing your comfort, your country, and that's bad enough. But then they come in and they institute this corrupt tax system, which was even worse. And then you remember the fact that Matthew is a Jew. And so to make matters even worse, one of your own, Matthew, Levi, sells himself out and gets rich off of your people, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. So I, I want to be clear to this morning so that you understand how Matthew would have been viewed at this day and time. We're not just blasting through a passage reading about a, ta- a random tax collector. These tax collectors were viewed as ultimate, the ultimate traitors of their society. They, they hired themselves out to Israel's oppressor, to Rome. They, they, they would have been unimaginable to the Jews. Like He literally bought his way into the Roman system. One author writes this, records show that The tax collectors took bribes from the rich. They extorted from the middle class and the poor and became hated and despised for their lack of nationalism. They were traitors of the worst kind. They had entered into the service of their country's conqueror and were amassing fortunes at the expense of their own oppressed country. Additionally, the Jewish people believed that it was wrong to pay taxes, feeling that only God should receive their money. So tax collectors were not only seen as anti-nationalistic, they were seen as anti-religion. Another man, this Jewish historian, says this, tax collectors could not attend the synagogue and were barred from having any religious interactivity with the people. They were grouped with unclean beasts, like swine. They were forbidden to be a witness in any court of law because they could not be believed. They were seen as flagrant liars. So why let them bear witness? They were classified with robbers and murderers. And so Jesus actually sheds light on a tax collector uh, at the time. Um, And he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Like Jesus is saying, even tax collectors can love. You've got to be doing something better than them. And then there's more to this. Like as I was studying this week, um, I actually saw that there was two different categories of tax collectors at this time. The first were these general tax, tax, uh, tax collectors that they called the gabai. And these guys' role was to collect regular taxes, like everyday taxes from people, property tax, income tax, this poll tax, which was like a census tax. And the tax collector would add their surcharge to that, and they would get rich in the process. And then there was a second type of tax collector. This tax collector was, um, was called the mokes. 
And these collectors received the taxes on everything else. So when it came to importing, exporting, everything bought, everything sold, every road, every bridge, every harbor, every town, everything is what they were responsible for. The goodbye were hated. Like people did not like these tax collectors, but the moats were loathed. Like even hated more than the goodbye. They, they were so oppressive, that they were unjust, and they, they hid behind the Romans while they squeezed everything out of their own people. They were the lowest of the low. And here's more. Of these mokes, there were two types of these mokes. There were the great mokes, and these were the individuals who wanted to save face. They cared about their reputation. And so what a, mo- a great moke did was hire somebody to sit at their tax booth for them so that they didn't have to show their face in the booth they could hire somebody else to do it and then never really be known that they were the tax collector. Somebody else could take that for them. And then there was another sect called the small mokes. And these were the individuals that were too cheap to hire anybody out. They couldn't afford it. And so they didn't really care about their reputation. So these collectors would sit at the booth themselves. One rabbi said this, for little mokes, repentance is impossible. In reference to the mokes, the the little moat tax collector. So Anthem, which one of these collectors do you think Matthew was? He was the little moat. He, he was the worst that Capernaum had to offer. He was the lowest of the low class. He was disdained, he was scorned, he was shunned, he was despised. And in the Jews' eyes, he was virtually unredeemable. He could not be helped. God wanted nothing to do with him. And what does Jesus do with this little moke, Matthew, Levi? He calls him. He calls him. He calls the worst. And this is what's taking place, is that Jesus called the worst. In Matthew 8, 19, it says, a scribe came to Jesus. He said, I want in. And Jesus looked into his heart and he said, no. And here we have one of the most despised in the culture. And Jesus looks into the heart of Matthew and he says, follow me. Jesus wouldn't allow a Pharisee, the most religious of the religious to follow him, but the little moke, the despised and shamed of his culture, Jesus calls out. So can you, like I asked you last week, to put yourself in the position of the paralyzed man, can you put yourself in the position of Matthew this morning? Can you imagine his reaction? I guarantee There wasn't a day of Matthew's life where he wasn't cursed, he wasn't ridiculed, he wasn't reminded of his career and what he did, and now Jesus tells him to follow me. So can you imagine how life-giving this would have been for Matthew to go from people cursing him to Jesus himself saying, follow me, come with me. I do not know your current state this morning. I don't know how others view you in your life or your reputation. I don't know what you're hiding behind this morning. And I don't know how many people you've had to walk over in order to attain the position, whatever it is in your life that you have. But you may be some, even somebody that the entire community has deemed has gone too far. The farthest of the far, the unredeemable, the despised, the scorned, the shamed. And if that's you this morning, then I want you to hear the call of Jesus because he's extending a hand to you and he's saying, follow me. So allow his voice to draw all the other voices, follow me. So hear me on this. Jesus does not care about your reputation. He cares about your restoration. 
Your reputation may be keeping you from getting into a lot of places in this area that you've been kicked out of in Coeur d'Alene. You can't go here and you can't go there because of who you are and the reputation you have and your history and your past. But your reputation, please hear this this morning, does not need to keep you from getting into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, follow me. So the first thing we notice is who Jesus called. The second thing is what the called did. We notice what the called did. It says, and he rose and he followed him. I mean, no questions asked. Jesus said, follow me, and he rose, and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And so what did the call do? What did Matthew do? One, Matthew followed. He obeyed. That word follow means to obey. Two, Matthew invited Who's he bring with him? Who are the other ones sitting at the table? Tax collectors and sinners. The ones who Matthew had a relationship with. And he invites us in. And and he invited the people to Jesus. For us this morning, let that be something that rings true in our life. Like We not only follow him, but we actually invite others to follow him as well. And so Matthew has this party of sorts, and he's so pumped about all that's going on, he throws this party, and so Jesus is the guest of honor at this party, and Matthew invites other people, and who's he invite? He invites the sinners, he invites other tax collectors, and the sinners, this word sinners, is sort of this umbrella term that pertained to those people who couldn't live up to the guidelines of the Jewish faith, at least the guidelines that were set forth by the Pharisees. And so it's this umbrella term. It was those that did not obey the law. And then there's these other tax collectors. Why in the world did Matthew invite them? Because it was his crew. (laughs) These were his people. These were his buddies. No one else would have come. And so he invites these guys to the party and the reclining of the table because in that day they would eat by lying down. And so you'd lean on your left arm and you'd eat with your right. And so they're all hanging out. Jesus, the disciples, tax collectors, sinners, they're having this party together. And But I think there's, there's something more for all of us. And I think Matthew invites them because this is what disciples of Jesus do. They invite people to Jesus. We don't just invite Jesus in, we invite people to Two, and so disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. The Great Commission says to go out into all the world and make disciples. What an awesome picture for us. This picture for us to see is is that Matthew's life is changed, and he's so pumped about it because here's the thing. Matthew would have known the desperation of his friends. Like, he knew their state. Matthew would have known the things that they were believing, the things that they were hearing about themselves. And so Matthew's like, there's someone here that you have to meet. And so Matthew invites them in to this party, to this meal, to have this feast. We have the same call, Anthem. The same desperation exists in our city today that we're reading about here. The same desperation. We do what we can to cover up a lot of stuff and to hide it, but it's the same desperation that Matthew's dealing with in his friends that he dealt with in himself that we see today. We have tons of people in our city that are down and out, 
tons of people that are poor and are struggling right now in our city. But there's more people in our city that are desperately poor in spirit than they are poor financially. And we have essentially everything that this world could offer. Like I always, I love to say to people, like are you living the dream? I just said it to Genia this morning. I, I like saying it because I, I, you, people's responses are funny, right? Like I don't know. Like I say that, I don't know, am I? Like what's the dream? Define the dream for me. And when you really begin to look at it, you say, wow, I live in the place that everybody else comes to vacation to. Wow, like the Lord put breath in my lungs this morning and eyes to see. I have these ears to hear, these hands and these feet. I have a great wife and amazing kids and awesome church. Like in the midst of everything, we have a lot to be grateful for. We have everything that the world, that, that this world can offer us and more. But doesn't the humility of Matthew stand out so clearly to you in this text? Like, who wrote the book of Matthew? <laughs> Matthew. So how does Matthew describe the scene? Like, I just read it to you. He simply says, I rose and I followed Jesus. And then you cut to these tax collectors and these sinners reclining at the table with Jesus and with Matthew, and that's how Matthew records it. But if you go to Luke's account of the same exact story, Luke describes it like this. Luke says, and leaving everything is how Luke intros the story. You leave a tax booth like Matthew is doing, you can't come back in a year. Your income and your career are gone. He's literally sacrificing everything to follow after Jesus. So don't think that this is just some random job that Matthew left. Understand what this job specifically represents. He left everything. He rose and followed Jesus. And, Matthew, uh, and Levi, that's Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. And there was this large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And I love Luke's account because it actually gives us this glimpse into seeing Matthew's humility. Like Matthew is so prone to make a little of himself and much out of Jesus. Like Jesus is the centerpiece of the story and you see that throughout the book of Matthew. But I also love Luke's account because it's this picture of what salvation is for us. I mean, listen to the voice of Jesus in Revelation 3.20 and see how it mirrors this passage. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's what's taking place in this passage. Jesus knocked. Matthew answered, invited Jesus in, and invited others to the party, and they feasted. The third thing we should notice is this. Notice the confusion towards the one who called Matthew, towards Jesus. And verse 11 says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's their frustration? Reputation, culture, religion, tells them not to do these things. At the time of this writing, there were three sects that, of people that made up Judaism. The sect of the Essenes, um, then you have the Sadducees, and you have these Pharisees, and you have these three sects that make up Judaism. The scribes fall under the Pharisees somewhere, and then you've even got 
the zealots that you could add to this list as well. But essentially, these three, they look different. You had the Essenes, the, these religious leaders that were super far like removed. They were monk-like people. You had these Sadducees that, in contrast, actually bought into Rome. They, they were... They, they, they sort of um, were all into Rome. They didn't believe in the miraculous. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, and so they were all in with Rome. They were kind of like the old adage, if you can't beat them, join them. And then you had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees didn't remove themselves quite like the Essenes, but they weren't willing to compromise like the Sadducees. They were in, but not of. And so they were also jealous for the hallowedness of God. Like they were committed to God. Their chief aim was to protect the honor of God and pursue holiness. And they saw the strict code of conduct and law keeping as being this means to the end. Like they just wanted to do everything right. And that was the means to the end. And so if, you're, if that's your chief, your chief aim and you observe a feast like this, what question do you ask if your chief aim is to just do everything that's right and follow the law every jot and tittle you probably ask the question like what is he doing eating with these people how is that committing to honoring god and the pharisees probably wondered how in the world they could sit down at a dinner paid for with money taken out of their own pockets and it's interesting like we continue to see jesus go back to these meals like there was something so close and intimate about sharing a meal, like eating, it was almost like a sacramental act. They were sharing this meal together. So what Jesus was doing was sort of scandalous in the culture's eyes. You, you go in, you sit down, and you eat, and it's not just about grabbing food. It actually was about relationship. It was about discussion. There was, God was kind of invited into the meal, like there was something holy about it, like it was very intimate. Community was very important to them, and this is why the rabbinical code actually forbade anyone to enter a tax collector's house. Like it just wasn't allowed culturally because to do that was actually to make the person unclean. And so the Pharisees wouldn't do it. And what I love about this story in verse 11 is it's sort of like the story of the prodigal son. The Pharisees are the older son. They're jealous for the honor of the father. They didn't leave. They stayed. But they wouldn't go into the feast. They stayed outside while the feast and the celebration for the younger son happened. The one who did dishonor the father. The one that had come home. And now the same thing's going on here. They wouldn't have gone inside. How would that honor the father? So they they could have stayed outside, that, that, that would have made more sense, but they chose to come in. And he says in verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. When you look in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, none is righteous, not one. Like in God's eyes, there's nobody that is righteous. So the question they're asking is like, why are you eating with these people? And I think Jesus' answer is because that's my mission.
So there's all this confusion towards Jesus because he's the one that should have known better. And Jesus decides to sit at the table with them. Jesus decides to feast with the sinners and with the, the publicans. And it didn't make sense to the culture. And the last thing I want to notice is this. We need to notice what the called are called to do. So Jesus makes a statement. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. There's something about us as followers of Jesus acknowledging the fact that we were sick. Like if you have no reason to acknowledge that you're sick, then why do you need Jesus at all? Jesus came to heal the sick, not the the fixed. (laughs) The fixed don't need a physician. The sick do. And so Jesus is sort of pointing the finger back at these Pharisees when he's making the statement, like, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. And he's kind of saying, like, you Pharisees, like, they're the ones who are well. They don't think they have a need for Jesus. And then you've got the tax collectors and the sinners who probably know their need to be saved more than anybody else because they've been ridiculed, because they know that they're the farthest off of the far, because they know that they need help. And I think sometimes in life, we are a people who sit around, even as Christians who have grown up in the church, that we sometimes get to a place where we think we don't need help. I'm good. They need help. The guy passed by in my car this morning on the side of the road, he needs help, I don't need help. And we reach these points in life where we actually become convinced that we are in no need of being saved. We don't need Jesus ourselves, and yet the ones who did are the ones who Jesus dined with. Notice what the called are called to do. Jesus says this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and learn what this means. He says, think and understand, ponder, meditate on this. Know what this means. This word desire means preference. And so what Jesus is saying is, I prefer mercy over sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. Sacrifice in the Jewish culture was like the pinnacle of the worship experience, right? According to Jewish law. So sacrifice was not something small. It was actually something huge. It was big. So for Jesus to say he prefers mercy over sacrifice was a massive statement that Jesus is making. We often in our lives neglect the weightier matters while looking for justification in smaller and less significant things that we've done. So I want you to think about this example. Like you're on your way to serve for the church, or you're at a function, going to a function, or whatever it is, you're going to do your religious duties, attend a Bible study, whatever it is, and on your way there, you bypass a person on the street that is in need. Anybody ever done that before? It's in those moments that I recognize more than ever what Jesus means when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Because the religious side of me says, keep driving and go do the thing that you need to go do. The Jesus side of me says, stop, have compassion and mercy for the person that I've put before you. And you put others first. And I think this is what Jesus was calling out. He's not saying sacrifice is bad, but he's saying his preference is mercy. And if your whole relationship with Jesus functions on this very transactional approach, like I'll do this, God, 
if you do this for me, then, then, then that can often lead to us missing out on opportunities to help those in need or, or to share a meal with, the, with, with those that the rest of the world will look down upon us for sharing a meal with. And Jesus is saying that their self-justification and righteousness was actually getting in the way of what matters most to God. It's literally keeping people from God because according to this, it wasn't just a wall that was put up between them and the Lord. It actually was keeping them from bringing others to him. Jesus says elsewhere, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. And so what do the called do? The called extend mercy. The called go after the one, the ones that nobody else will. The called are more concerned with others than just trying to do what's right. And I don't know if you grew up in the church this morning, but after years of being ingrained in it, it's easy sometimes to shift into a mode where we just do what's right religiously versus actually doing what's right as to what the Holy Spirit is asking us to do in that moment. There are train wrecks and opportunities that you are passing by on a daily basis There are people out there that the rest of the world looks down upon, makes no time for. There are people out there that you are afraid to even hang out with because you're afraid of what others will think if they see you hanging out with them. And yet these are the ones that Jesus says, follow me to. And so what does it look like for us as a church in the city we live in to be the ones that dine with and invite in those that the world won't? to be a part of this thing and following Jesus. Maybe some of you here this morning are actually the ones that have been the down and out, the downcast, the despised, the shamed. And even getting here this morning for you was like a massive feat because you did not want to go place yourself in a position with a bunch of religious people who have it all figured out while you're struggling to even know which way's up and which way's down in life. And I'm telling you this morning, if any of us here is so religious that we think we have it figured out and we can't admit that we're a sinner in desperate need of Jesus, then we've got it wrong. And I'm telling you this morning, if anybody tells you that you're too far gone to come feast at the table with Jesus, they're wrong. Because these are the people that Jesus invited in. So as I close, I'll ask the worship team to come up. I want you to remember who Jesus called, who was Matthew. I want you to remember what the call did. I want you to remember the confusion that was stirred up over the one who called them. And finally, I want you to remember what the called are called to do, to extend mercy, to be people of grace, to be people that stand with others that others won't stand with. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. Um, We thank you for your grace, Lord. I thank you for the fact um, that I'm a sinner in need of grace and being saved like any other person. And I thank you, Jesus, that you saw me and that you called me out. And I pray for those in this room that are struggling to figure out 
whether you're calling them and whether they're too far gone to come sit at a table with Jesus. I pray, Jesus, that this morning you'd wipe their shame away, the guilt that's been piled on them for years. I pray, Jesus, that they find your peace and your joy this morning. I pray, God, that we would turn to you as the only one that can save us. Lord, as we acknowledge this morning that we are sinners far off, desperately in need of a savior. And God, what you did was send your only begotten son to live a blameless life, to model what it meant to follow after God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to die a brutal death on the cross so that all of us who've fallen short would find our deficit made up by Jesus. And so this morning, I pray for those in this room that just feel down and out, that feel discouraged and have never turned to you before. I pray that this morning, they acknowledge the fact that though they're down and out, there's nothing they can do to make their way to you, but acknowledge the fact that you sent your son to die on their behalf, that their deficit, God, their righteousness is dependent. It hinges on King Jesus. And this morning, I pray that they would turn to you. And Jesus, I pray for your church this morning is, um, Lord, there's just so much in this life, in this culture, in our society right now that I think is convincing us to hide from certain people, to not enter hard conversations, to stay away from this person, that person, this situation, that situation. And yet, Jesus, we see that you engaged a broken world and the most broken of people. And I pray for us this morning that even in the cultural climate we find ourselves in now, that your church would be a church that would actually step into the mess and invite you not only to be with them, but to bring others along this journey as well. Jesus, as we follow you, would others follow Christ in us? And so Jesus, I just pray for your church. I pray that you'd be with her. I pray that you'd guard our hearts and our minds as there's so much out there trying to come against us. I pray, Jesus, that you'd strengthen us. I pray, God, for your encouragement to come in a powerful way and your peace to abound in our lives in times when it doesn't make sense. I pray, Jesus, for your joy to be present and obvious in and through us. And as we leave this place today, God, may we have eyes to see those that you're calling to sit at the table, to dine at the feast, to be introduced to King Jesus, no matter how far off they are. In Jesus' name that we pray.